You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, go to the book of Micah. It is in the Old Testament. Um, It comes after Jonah. It is towards the uh, end of the Old Testament. It is in the midst of what we call the 12 minor prophets. They are not minor because they are insignificant. They are minor simply because these writings from these prophets are shorter uh, than the others. And so uh, Micah falls into that category. We began the study last week. We're going to pick up this week um, looking at the remainder of chapter 1 that we didn't look at Uh, last week. But to begin the time, I want to read to you, uh, it's from the Harvard Business Review, uh, 2012. It's an article, and they've done lots of these articles. I mean, you can can pick which one, if you were interested, which to to click in and to read on. But they, writing about um, this uh, phenomenon, this uh, thing called, uh, what they call, the imposter syndrome. Let me read you a couple of paragraphs. If you've ever thought to yourself, one of these days people will realize I don't know as much as they think, then you are in excellent company. It goes on, to some some extent, of course, where we're all imposters. We play roles on the stage of life, presenting a public self that differs from the private self we share with intimates and morphing both selves as circumstances demand. Displaying a facade is part and parcel of the human condition. Goes on and says, indeed, one of the reasons the feeling of being an imposter so widespread is that society places enormous pressure on people to stifle their real selves. The, the article goes on, he describes all these case studies of folks that you know, found themselves in places where uh, they were sure that everyone around them was going to figure out they had no idea what they were doing. They had no qualification for being where they were. They, they, they were. they were faking it in hopes of making it. And the reality is, what the article goes on to say, that it's this fear we have. There are these fears. There's fears of being embarrassed, fears of public speaking. One of the greatest fears we have as human beings, as part of our condition, is the fear of being found out. Found out for who I really am. And somebody might discover that behind all of the, uh, of the social media posts... The, the Facebook pictures and the, 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 the Instagram moments that I've tried to portray to the world, that the people might find out that beneath all of that is a facade, that my life isn't what I am projecting it to be or hoping it to be. See, in many ways, what we're going to see in this passage this morning, um, there are some hard things in this passage. I'm not going to lie to you, and I certainly don't want to sugarcoat anything. Micah's writing to his people. 
people that he loves. In fact, Micah has to do something very courageous. He has to take the word of God, the God he's faithful to, and he has to preach it to a people that he loves. And in being faithful to the word that he preaches, the people he loves are going to turn on him. They don't want to hear it. Because what Mike is going to do is he's going to expose Israel. He's going to expose Judah. He, the, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. He's going to expose them for the imposters that they are. And then he's going to talk about God's going to speak through Micah and say, I'm coming as a judge. I, I'm, come, I'm holding a trial. You're being put on trial. And everything about you will be exposed. That's what Micah is telling him. Now, as one writer said, the content of this is absolute judgment. I mean, the, the content of what we read this morning is terror. But the quality underneath of it, the, the, the message underneath all of it, is a hope. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to see the, the judgment. I want us to see the terror. What it means to be found out by God. And then I want us to get underneath that. And I want us to see the hope that Mike is going to give us. So, so if you'll start with me, um, I'm going to begin in verse 2 of Micah chapter 1. Last week we looked at, at, at verse 1. We said this about it, Micah's writing. Uh, we know really nothing about Micah, except he's a guy that's Micah from Morasheth, which means he's, he's a nobody from nowhere. And he's um, writing in the days of these kings. He lists the southern kings, the kings of Judah. The north is really in its last moments of existence. The south is not too far behind. And this is when he's writing. And so he says this in verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention. But pay attention, O earth, and all that's in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. He, he begins this that, hey, listen, the Lord is coming to judge. He's coming as the judge. It marks the first section of the book. There's going to be three of these sections. You can see it in verse 1, 2. You said, hear all the peoples. You'll see that again in chapter 3, verse 1. You see it again in chapter 6, verse 1. The court is being convened. The peoples of the earth are being summoned because God is going to going to show up as a witness against them. He, he's bringing his case against them. And we find he's not only the judge, he's also the prosecuting attorney. And the Lord is in his holy temple. 
So the nation of Judah, its, its capital was J Jerusalem. Uh, the, the nation of Israel, uh, north, its capital was Samaria. And then there's lots of time and energy and resources um, that had gone into um, fortifying these capitals and making them strong and, and opulent and beautiful. But none of that compares to the splendor of the heavenly temple. The other thing to notice about this is that this is not... Um, God is not only the God here of Israel, of Israel and Judah. It's not just a localized deity. Like, like you could, you had, there, there was the God of Israel, but then if you went north into Assyria, they had their gods, and you went south into Egypt, they had their gods. It, it's not like that. What God, He shows up, He's the God of the universe, and His prerogative, His right, is is to judge the entire world, everyone. In 3 and 4, you see that he's coming down out of his place. He's, he's, he's going to come down. The, the God who is transcendent, who, who uh, is outside of, in many ways, time and space. The, the God who dwells in the heavenly places. The, 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 the God who is transcendent. That God is also very intimate. In Genesis chapter 11, you go all the way back to Genesis, you see there's this thing, the peoples of the earth, they've gathered, they've come together at a place called Babel, and they're going to build a tower, and uh, they're building a tower to their, to their glory, a monument to their might, a, a monument to how great humanity is. And the way that Moses puts it is that God had to come down. He had to stoop way down to see this human splendor. Here what happens is that God is going to come down. God is involved. He is intimate. He is not removed. He is offended up close. And he sees. Listen, it's, I, you know this. There's a part of you that knows this, and, and yet we operate so differently. We hide Nothing from God. Nothing. He sees everything. He, he is not removed from our lives. He is not removed from our days. He is not removed from our thoughts. He, he sees and knows and hears all. In fact, David will write in Psalm 139, he, he writes about this truth about God, it, not, not in a terrifying way, Although it is terrifying, but it, to David it was a great comfort. He says in Psalm 139, oh, oh Lord, you've searched me and know me. You, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. God is acquainted with all your ways? Man, I work really hard so that you're not acquainted with all my ways. But God is. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge, he says, is too wonderful for me. 
It's high. I, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Well, where could I go? Where would I be able to flee from your presence? Here what Micah sees in this vision is God's foot hitting the ground and the earth trembling. The, the house of cards will, will fall apart at his presence. Nothing survives the presence of God when he shows up. The mountains, they're going to melt like wax. At Christmas time, I don't know about your house, at Christmas time all my siblings gather. And we're they're at my mom's house or with, with Leslie's siblings at her parents. And, and the cousins, inevitably, all the children will get together. And you know that it's happening, although you don't know exactly what's happening because you, while you have parental wisdom, you don't have parental omniscience, right? You have parental space in the room, and then all of a sudden it's gotten quiet, and all the, all the cousins, all the children, they're, they're, they're back in some room, and it's really quiet, and they've hatched a plan, right? And they've decided that they are going to, you know, uh, gift wrap the, the youngest of, of all of them. You know, and try to try to put them under the tree, to try to try to hide them until Christmas, or you know, I mean, they they're up to devious things, and the worst thing that they can imagine. Mean, you walk in as a parent into their space, and all of a sudden it gets quiet. It gets the plan gets foiled. Excuse me. God shows up. So when the Lord comes in Scripture, it will rock the world. It's not like the strolling God in the garden with Adam and Eve. The earth is going to tremble. Listen, this is what makes the incarnation so unbelievable. John says about him, the, the, the gospel writers say, Jesus is God with us. And we survived. That's what's so remarkable about it. One writer said, it's great. Our danger begins when we look at this text and say, well, now, th this is symbolic language. Maybe. But if so, symbolic of what? Symbols point to realities. A biblical writer often uses symbolic or hyperbolic language because normal description is utterly inadequate for impressing the truth upon the readers. Say whatever you want about this to make you feel better, but understand that by these verses, Micah's, Micah doesn't want you to feel better. He wants you to tremble. M Micah writes this in a way so that we would read it and we would tremble at the thought of God's presence, His coming down out of his holy temple. Because everything will be exposed. Everything will be found out. Interesting to note, in verse 4, you see the ruin of creation. In verses 6 and 7, what we'll see is the ruin of Samaria at God's presence. In verse 5, though, in between those, here's the reason given for why the Lord is going to come down out of heaven 
and convene the court. It says, all of this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So he's coming down, and the reason he's here, so up to this point, there is maybe some sense in which the hearers would have said, yeah, yeah, the doctrine of God's judgment. Man, we dig that doctrine. Because Psalm 68 tells us when God comes, he's going to judge the nations of the earth, but we're his people, and we'll be safe. Man, we love that doctrine. The world around us is going to finally get what they deserve. And yet Micah turns it on him. He says, no, the reason this judgment's coming, the reason he's coming down, is because of you. It's because of God's people. The word transgression, probably better, is translated rebellion, and everybody's guilty. Samaria up in the north, Jerusalem in the south. Jerusalem as a whole, the whole of Jerusalem has become a high place, a, a place of idolatry. The, the, the whole of worship in Jerusalem is, is an imposter. So see, they, they would have heard of God coming to judge. And his presence would be terrifying. But they thought they would have been safe. The apple of God's eye wouldn't be bruised. And yet Micah says, no, he's coming. He's coming for you. And so just before the people say, amen, Micah, he's going to deliver the punch. They approve the doctrine, but they would have been oblivious to the danger. You see, they assumed that their favor with God was owing to their last name or their place of birth or their prosperity or their uh, going through the motions at the temple or their designation as one nation under God. That's what they were. But being a believer, listen to this, being a believer doesn't have to do with your circumstances. It doesn't have anything to do with your last name. It doesn't have to do with your heritage. It's, being a believer is not just what you've grown up with. The answer is, do you believe? Well, what have you put your trust in? Unexamined lives are not lives of faith. Micah is bringing his nation, he's bringing God's people to a place of examination. They're on trial, and their life will not stand the test. In fact, what's fascinating is, is that just one generation before Micah speaks, Israel is, the north is uh, descending. They're outwardly prosper, uh, prospering. They're inwardly decaying. Jerusalem in the south is not far behind. And one generation before this, what God does is he sends a prophet named Jonah north to Assyria. He sends a prophet his prophet, with his message to the enemies, to the rebels, to the pagans, to those whom Israel was sure God would judge. God sends his prophet to those people with his message. And you know what they do? They repent. 
And in their own land, God will send his prophet to his own people. And they will mock God. They will rebel against him. They were notorious for killing their prophets. Well, in verses 6 and 7, you have the destruction of Samaria. It says this, therefore I will make. God says, I will make. I will make. What we know from history that how God does that is he brings Assyria in, this huge army, they come in. Um, but, but God is saying, look, behind all of that, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten to pieces. All her wages will be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste, and from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Samaria had been the pet project of the northern kings for years. It's set on this high top, 300 feet high, isolated from the hills. It was this masterful, defensive position. They, they believed it was strong and fortified and secure. And it's just a few years after this that Micah's prophecy is going to be fulfilled. At least the beginning of it will be fulfilled. And in 722, the, the great army of the north, the Assyrians, they're, they're going to come down. They are going to wipe out this northern kingdom. And Samaria will fall in 722, and then for the next 600 years, it will continue to be torn down. And then about, a, about 100 B.C., there's a guy named Hasmonean John Hyracantus. And he and his sons go to Samaria, and they scrape the ground clean. Everything collapsed. That's what makes it so fascinating that this judgment will come upon Samaria because of their idolatry, their harlotry. A people who said, hey, we worship God, and yet they didn't. We're God's people, and yet be because they didn't believe God. They didn't trust God. They didn't turn to God. They weren't. And so God brings his judgment upon them. And that's why it's so interesting that in John chapter 4, Jesus, John records that Jesus, early in his ministry, goes to Samaria. Now, no good, right, upstanding Jew would have ever gone to Samaria, but Jesus does. And I just want you to hear one touch of this conversation in light of what Micah has predicted and what did happen. Jesus is traveling. They go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria, he said. While well, his disciples, I'm sure, are rolling their eyes. No good person goes to Samaria. And yet Jesus goes and he finds himself thirsty in his humanity. He sits by a spring, and there's a woman who comes up to get water. It's in the middle of the day, and he says, uh, may, may, may I have um, some water? And she said, why, why are you talking to me? 
I'm a woman and I'm a Samaritan. And he says, hey, listen, if you'd have known who I was, you would have asked me for water. I have water and you'll drink and never thirst again. And she says, well, I want that. I don't want to be thirsty. I don't want to have to come here ever again. And so Jesus does what Jesus does. Now, we don't think about this often, but Jesus shows up first as the judge. See, it's a story of grace. It's a story of hope. But he begins with judgment, and he says this. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying that. I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. And I perceive that you're a prophet. She'd gone to the well in the middle of the day because she didn't want to be found out. She didn't want anybody to see her. Whatever kind of air she put on, whatever kind of dignity that she tried to salvage from this life of wreckage that she had, she didn't want it exposed, and yet Jesus is here and shows up at the judge in Samaria and exposes her to her very core. And then he has a conversation with her about worshiping. Because obviously she didn't know anything about worship. And he goes on and he says this. You worship what you don't know. But the hour is coming and now is here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who's called the Christ. I I know about that. And when he comes, he'll tell us all these things. And he said, I who speak to you am he. I've known about the Messiah. I didn't know really where to go to get the information. I didn't really know anything about this worship. I know that he's coming, though. And I know when he does, he'll tell us the right things. What she didn't know is that when he comes, he will come to expose everything about you. And only in that can we find hope. You see, later the woman's going to go back to the town. John records it, and she says this. This many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And here's her testimony. He told me everything that I ever did. He is her judge, but he is also her hope. And being found out, she was found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. The saved wretch like me, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You see, people will run from being found, from from being found out by God their whole lives. 
So see, they believe that the problems and the struggles of this world are only and merely in this world. So look, I, I have problems. I have, I have I, there are things. I know, look, there are things. But man, those are, those are things. Look, they're in this world. They're be because of circumstances beyond me or because of circumstances I've created and with enough time, with enough ingenuity, I can fix that. And they'll run their whole lives. Or they'll seek to build a security of walls around them. They'll seek to fortify themselves. They think, look, if I just fortify myself from the enemy, if I just build the walls, if I protect myself, if I find enough security, self-security then the enemy won't get in. But the enemy they are walling themselves out from is God. We're running. We're trying to outrun him. Or, not only some will seek to build security. Here's another thing they'll do. And this is exactly what the people in Micah's day were doing. They will try to align themselves with some other strength. A weak nation will align itself with a strong nation. So there's no allegiance necessarily in that, that they're seeking what's mutually beneficial. So God's people did that. They would align themselves with the, with the people from the north and pay tributes or align themselves with Egypt in the south and, and pay tributes. The problem is, is, is that when a weaker nation aligns itself with something stronger, it says, okay, I, I have no allegiance there, but I need to align myself. I'll do the right things. I'll do the things I need to because somehow my allegiance with you is going to protect me from being found out or being exposed or being destroyed. But every time we create those allegiances, here is what it becomes. It becomes a bondage. And so let me just say it this way. This is how many people associate themselves with the church. They align themselves with the church. They think somehow, look, I, I, look, I just need to be a part of that group. I just need to assimilate. I need to get into it. I need to be around this thing because I think there's protection in being there. So you align yourself. There's no allegiance. But is someone weaker coming to something that they think is stronger For the sake of protecting themselves, so that maybe I won't be found out. I think you can keep from being found out if you just blend in, but that is bondage. And there are lots of folks that sit in churches on Sunday morning. And this is not joy. This is bondage. God's going to come as a judge against Samaria. But it serves as a paradigm for all the judgments of God. God's judgment on one, uh, Samaria and Jerusalem, it implies a judgment on all. His judgments in time imply a judgment beyond time. No one will outrun judgment. 
we will all face God as judge. It's ironic. These were the people of God. They were supposed to be the ones that the world looked to said, okay, their God, their God keeps them safe. They worship Him. They love Him. And the nations were to come to Israel to meet their God. And yet what this is, is they're going to they're going to become the example. They're going to become the example for the world that, hey, listen, if you cross this God, if you rebel against him, if you mock him, if you serve idols and put your hope in them, this is what happens to you. Look with me real quickly. I'll show you the rest of this chapter how it shakes out. In 8 and 9, Micah's going to lament this. Micah's not happy about this at all. He, this, is, this is terrible. It says, I will lament and wail. I'll go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Howling in a field, like a wounded and desperate animal, waiting for prey to descend upon it. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah, and it has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. The wound is incurable. There's nothing they can do about it. And not only that, that's the north. My people in the south, Jerusalem, it's spread to us. It's come to our door. We cannot escape this either. You see, they thought the problem was Assyria up north. They thought the problem was a security problem. We just need more walls. We just need more armies. We just need better defenses. We just need better alliances. But the problem wasn't Assyria. The problem was their sin. The threat wasn't Assyria. The threat was God himself. Listen, sin, defiance, rebellion, depravity, it's beyond human capacity to resolve. It's a sin problem. Human problems can't be solved with human solutions. I mean, you have the ability to clean up relatively small messes. You can do that. But we can't solve our fundamental problem of sin. Sin is the presence of faithlessness. It is functional disbelief. And God's judgment is coming on sin. It's not God's fault. It's ours. And his retribution, his judgment will be dreadful and terrifying. And verses 10 through 15, he's going to go through a list of towns. If you went west out of Jerusalem and went to the Mediterranean, these towns are found all in that area. And what he's going to do is he's going to make these puns, these word plays on their names. 
We lose it in the English, but if we were Hebrew writers, they would sound things such like this. Smith County will be smashed and smitten. I borrowed these from Eric. He's good at stuff like this. I like work two hours. I couldn't come up with anything. He did it in the shower. <laughs> Smith County will be smitten and smashed. Jacksonville will be jacked. I don't know what that means. Bullard will be bulldozed. White House will fade to black. That's a good one, right? Watch out, White House. Hope Mark does a good job over there today. All right. Troop will be trampled by troops. Van will be run over. Will's point will have no point. Do you, do you, do you get this? This is how they work. This is, this is what Micah's going to do. Listen to it. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. So Gath was a place of telling and gossip. There's not going to be any telling there. Beth was this, it means house of dust. They're going to roll in it. They're going to mourn. They're going to grieve. Shafir, the next one, means beauty, or like a beauty town. But they're going to be naked and ashamed. Zanan means to go out or to exit, but there's not going to be any escape for them. Bethazel means a place of standing, but they won't have any leg to stand on, is what he's saying. Maroth, it means bitterness or perfect grief. They'll wait for sweetness, but it won't come because of the judgment of God. Lachish is this gate city. It's positioned. It, 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 was, it was to be a, 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 a place of, of safety. But it won't be that. Morasheth Gath, which is where Micah was from, it'll receive parting gifts. Um, it means they're going to be the gift. They're going to be taken captive. Akzib, it means cleverness or trickery. But it will be a place of deceit. Marishah was a head place, but it'll be We'll have a conqueror decapitated, it's what he says. And Adulam was supposed to be a retreat or a refuge. But yet they'll, they'll run and they'll, they'll hide. And then notice in verse 16, he says, Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight, make yourselves as bald as the eagle. For they shall go from you into exile. Oh, Mother Jerusalem, mourn over the tragedy of your children. They're going to go into exile. You're going to lose your children. You're going to lose your delight. You're going to lose your heritage. You're going to lose everything. Super encouraging, isn't it? Let's get underneath it for a second. One. I think one of the things that Micah means for us to take from this is that we would be grieved. He's grieved. He does not celebrate the judgment of God upon anyone. He, he does not long for the judgment of God upon anyone. He sees the judgment fall. He sees it as though it were happening in real time. And he is 
grieved by it. It's not a, well, they're getting what they deserve. No, we all deserve this. Let it grieve us. We would be grieved. Be grieved by the sin in our life. The second is that we'd be warned. See, the people of Judah thought they were okay. They thought they were God's people. They'd even aligned themselves with all this temple and religious activity. And they thought, well, judgment's not going to happen to us. We're going to outrun God. We're not going to be found out. You see a marriage crumble. You see someone caught in sin. Don't think, well, they're just getting what they deserve. Be grieved over them. And then don't find yourself saying, well, I'd never do, I'd never do that. I'd never do that. I'd never do that. We shouldn't do that. Be warned. And then finally, I would say, be hopeful. You might be thinking, oh, I read these verses, and there's not much hope in them. I see lots of judgment, but not much hope. Micah's writing under the old law. The old law was the law of retribution. Required an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. On one level, we, we think we like that, but here's the problem. Sin demands judgment. Sin cannot be overlooked. It cannot be forgotten. It cannot just be winked at. Under the old law, an offense must be repaid with an equal offense. Sin could not just be overlooked. It had to be repaid. There had to be retribution. It was incurable for Samaria. And you and I are in the same place. Listen, we have all sinned against the holy and perfect judge. And our sins, they are just like the sins of Judah and just like the sins of Israel to be punished. We don't think we haven't set up our altars and our idols and sought our securities and our alignments and been trying to outrun God so that we won't be found out. We're there. In the end, Micah's going to tell them that God is going to send a conqueror. Someone who is going to take everything they owned, take their freedom, take their land, their possessions, their children, would lead them into captivity and slavery because of their incurable wound. That was going to be their judgment. Their rebellion and sin couldn't be overlooked. It had to be punished. So God took away their freedom, their land, their possessions, took everything they had and took them into captivity. But here's the hope. God never forgot them. See, sin can't be overlooked. It can't be ignored, but it but it can be forgiven. At the time of Micah, God had a plan to send another conqueror. Micah will talk about it 700 years before it actually happens. We'll get to this in a couple of weeks. And God is sending this conqueror, and this conqueror is someone that's coming to capture you and to take you away, except this time, not taking you into captivity. He's coming to set you free. 
wasn't to take away your freedom. It was to grant you freedom. It wasn't to take you away to a foreign land, but it was to bring you home to a promised land and all the punishment that our sin required. This conqueror steps in not to conquer us, but to be conquered and crushed by what we deserve, but we don't want to pay. We can't pay. All of our sin is laid upon Christ and all of God's judgment is poured out on Him. And that's why we've gathered this morning. We've gathered to worship Him. We've gathered to worship Jesus, the one who came to stand trial for us. The, the one who came to cure our incurable wound. The one who came to conquer sin and death to set us free. The one that came to find us out so that we could be found. We've, we've come to worship Are you, are you running from him? Or are you hoping that you'll outrun him and not be found out by him? And I ask you real plainly, is that, is that why you're here this morning? Align with the church, I'll, I'll get right with God. Be found by him. Look into the face of his son. The one who died on the cross for you. Who knows everything about you. And took it upon himself. There's nothing to hide from him. All that's left is to be found by him. Do you believe do you trust him listen there's judgment coming for everybody the great news is that for believers that have looked into the face of Jesus the one who took our judgment who took we our judgment goes like this the books opened the book of life of the lamb who was slain and when I look upon him and when I see him and what he has done by taking my sin upon him, my name goes in his book and the judgment comes and I stand before the living God. And the book's open and says, oh, there you are. Covered. Paid. Judgment has been executed and satisfied. My child... But if it's not there, the other books get opened and we stand before God laid bare and all we have is who we are. And nobody survives that. Do you know God as judge? Do you know his son as your savior? Do you believe?
you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. These are hard words from Micah. We know that in the 21st century, as it was in the 1st century, as it was in the 8th century B.C., it is not in vogue ever to talk about sin, to talk about your terrifying and dreadful judgment. And yet, Father, over and over again, you... You've been faithful and gracious to speak to us, to reveal to us who you are. So that we'd see you rightly. We would, we'd know rightly who you are. We'd know that we can't outrun you. We'd know that we lay bare before you. And our hope is not security or alliances or running faster or doing better. Our hope is in the conqueror that you have sent, your son Jesus, to be conquered on our behalf, to take our sin, to endure our punishment, your wrath, your judgment, for the delay in a grave, dead for three days, and then rise to new life. Father, there's many here this morning that need to be found out they can be found by you. Father, I pray they would see your son high and lifted up. And that we would know the grace that comes from you because of the judgment you poured out on your son. You know us, everything about us. Father, I pray we would see you rightly. We ask all this the only way we can in the name of your son Jesus and by the power of of your spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.